Welcome to the Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we welcome Karen Jess Lindsley to the podcast. Karen is the CEO and co-founder of Lindsley Lighting, a not-so-small, small lighting company that you may or may not have heard of. They've been around for about a decade now in the architectural lighting industry, and let's just say Karen knows a thing or two about not only running a business, but how to make one from scratch and how to make it with some pretty cool rock-solid intentions that are largely focused around sustainable practices. Karen, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? Fantastic. Great to be here. It's so good to have you here. I know that you were a big part of a documentary that we put together earlier this year called Sustainability on the Rise with four key individuals that kind of talked a lot about what sustainability in this industry means. And you're actually our ringleader for all of it. You found them all, you assembled the tribe, and you put a panel lecture together, which has now grown into a documentary and this conversation along with five other panelists as well. They were all really insightful and enlightening and very pointed, and today's conversation is meant to just continue to add on to that. But before we get into all of that, tell everyone, Who's Karen? What's your passion? And how'd you get your start in lighting? Let me unpack that with about three different thoughts. So the first one is, I am truly passionate about creating and building new brands and new businesses. That's been my professional career for multiple decades, mostly outside of lighting, but clearly for the last decade in the heart of it. My second passion is clearly sustainability. It's been part of my lifestyle since I was in college. We just happened to go to college at a time when thinking about the earth and the beginnings of Earth Day and all of those things where we started being thoughtful about the decisions we made were very influential. My husband and business partner, Alan, uh, was in the architecture school at CU Boulder. Go Buffs! Of course. When he showed up to the first day of orientation, And they announced that it was no longer going to be the School of Architecture, but the School of Environmental Design. So suddenly, his architecture program was immersed in the field of environmental perspectives and how does the built environment fit within the greater environment. So we were those crazy couple that went backpacking for our honeymoon in the Canadian Rockies. We had our very first townhouse, was a solar townhouse on the outskirts of Boulder up against open space. And we've been trying to live a sustainable life ever since. So I think it's uh, fair to say you're beyond qualified to say, (laughs) you know, what the hell we're talking about here when it comes to making some observations about what's going on around you every single day and how you can make one of two choices. The quote, sustainable choice or the, I don't even know what you call the opposite, a non-sustainable choice. True, but I'm always learning. And one of the other things that also drives me is a passion for trying to make people and the world I live in a little bit better. Maybe it's just through smiling at somebody and saying thank you. But other times it's trying to say, okay, is there a way to push the envelope? Is there a way to make people think about something so that they do something different so that they also, so I've been able to inspire them to also try to do the right thing, either personally or professionally, or especially around sustainability. You talk about the desire to help coach people, the desire to build businesses and all this other stuff. A lot of that is kind of grassroots stuff. No pun intended. (laughs) 
right? Sure there is. <laughs> yeah, maybe one or two. I think a good word that summarizes a lot of this is innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, innovation is seen at many, many levels. Today, it can be seen in terms of just like quite literally, you know, recycling waste. It can be seen as recycling waste more efficiently. It can also be seen as like, well, how does that waste container get there? And what is that waste container made of? Let's optimize that for the waste on this product. Like you can go so far down the road mm-hmm. of just innovating one single process. Uh, I'll throw our entire industry out the window for a second and I'll talk about something that's sitting on the table in front of you and I. It's a water bottle. Like 25 years ago, how many water bottles could you go out and buy? I don't know. Like I'm sure Gatorade had their classic like green one and Nike maybe had one and that was really it. Bicycle water bottles. Yeah, bicycle (laughs) water bottles. And now there's like 25 probably major companies and their core product is some form of a sustainable material that you drink water out of. Mm -hmm. And they're in business big time because their message resonates. And I think that's something that's really important when you look at innovation. You can't innovate for the sake of innovating. You have to innovate for the sake of the fact that it matters to people, that it is something that people may not necessarily see today they want, but know tomorrow when they have it, they will want it and they'll want more of it. When you look at innovation just broadly and also within your business, where do you think innovation comes from? The way I look at how to be innovative is I look for, throughout my entire career, I look for the white space. So the white space is there is an unmet need and there isn't a product that really fits that need. So I've worked in the beer industry, I've worked in the wine industry, I've worked in transportation and logistics, worked in the lighting industry. Wherever I go, I'm looking for where's that white space? Where is there something that doesn't currently exist? You don't want to just make products because you have a great idea because nobody might need that. Is that why the first hard seltzer is called White Claw? (laughs) Oh, I could actually talk to you about that because I actually created the concept for Zima, which was the first. Uh, all right, hold the phone. Hold <laughs> the phone. If we're going to talk about <laughs> if we're going to talk about Zima, there's potentially a lot of people on this podcast who have no clue what you're talking about. Yeah, so they probably shouldn't. <laughs> I'm just I'm, I'm just going to say, if you don't know what Zima is, call your parents or Google it. First malt alternative beverage. So White Claw and all those other other beverages that have come since then started because I saw an open space, an unmet need in the beverage industry when I worked at Coors Brewing Company. I mean, it's just incredible, right? Like, why would we ever make any other kind of beer? You know, why would we make Because not everybody likes the taste of beer. Yeah, but, (laughs) you know, we sell 10 million cans a year. It's a fascinating concept, innovation. You know, there are so many things out there today. And when we look at our industry, the lighting industry, holy smokers, there's so many light fixtures out there. There's so much, honestly, copycat stuff out there. And then there's also a lot of unique, innovative products. Did I just use the word innovative? I did. Yeah. You did. Because they are innovative. But there's constantly new and new and more and more and more and more. When you look at what drives innovation, it's easy to sit there and come up with an idea. Who cares? What makes innovation happen? I think the first thing you have to do is you have a kernel of an idea and you then have to dedicate yourself to taking that kernel of an idea and making it a reality. And that can be a really long and very bumpy road. It doesn't happen overnight. 
And especially if you're truly being innovative, if you're truly doing something that nobody's done exactly that way before. It's not to say that you've just invented something that had never, ever been seen before. Most things are sort of a reinvention of an idea that currently exists. You have to have the commitment, time, resources, energy, intestinal fortitude (laughs) to take it from concept to test to reality. And you might get partway through and say, this isn't working. I got to think this through again. We have to shift the way we thought this might work. And then you push forward until you finally have it. And then you have to be willing to put it out there and see if there really is a need for it. And you have to be willing to accept failure as well as success because you're going to learn from both. There's a lot of grit in there. There's a lot lot of time. (laughs) There's a lot of commitment. I think, you know, one of the biggest things that when I reflect on everything you're saying is the end of the day, why does Zima not exist? Yet something like Zima exists today. This is a beautiful analogy. Holy smokes, who knew we were going to talk about alcohol in this entire (laughs) podcast? The fact that you have to commit to something that's innovative is very true in its essence. I think anybody can pick anything they think is impressive that totally changed the landscape of whatever. And they can recognize how much commitment and time and energy it took to innovate that. Now, why are we sitting here talking about innovation? Because really, we're here to talk about sustainability, which isn't a word, which isn't a checkbox, which isn't a phrase. It's a way, right? It's It's an opportunity. It's a lifestyle. It's something that might be holistic. It's something that might be programmatic. It's something that might be both and other things beyond that, but it requires commitment. With the idea of commitment in mind, talk to me a little bit more about your life. I mean, that holistic lifestyle that you've kind of always embodied and what it means to have, let's just call it a holistic mindset. Well, first of all, I believe that if you're going to do anything, you need to do it well and that you need to look at not what is only on the surface, but what lies beneath the surface. So for example, when we're creating light fixtures, you know, you look at the materials, but then where do they come from? And what goes into them? And why do they cost what they cost? Or why are they made the way they are made? Or where they are made? And to learn about those things. I think the people who do the best innovation are people who are true believers. They believe in what they're doing. So we're a, Lindsley Lighting is a mission-driven company. We believe in creating sustainable lighting. And we look at sustainability from a lot of different perspectives. So that's our more holistic approach. And so let me share a personal story. When we first moved into our house in Northern California, we're in an oak woodland forest and everybody told us we needed to spray for oak moths because otherwise they would eat up all the leaves on the oak trees. So I very dutifully scheduled someone to come out and spray the oak trees. And they came with these great big nozzles that look like a fire hose and they sprayed the tops of these magnificent oak trees, covered them in this chemical to kill the oak moths. And then as they're leaving, they said, oh, by the way, do you have children? And I said, yeah. And they said, don't let them play outside for the next three days. And what I realized is I had just poisoned my entire yard. I had put something that was not only toxic to the oak moths, but I killed all the bees. I potentially harmed all the birds that lived in the trees. And it was so toxic, I couldn't put my own children outside. 
And I was like, I am never doing that again. That put me down a road of looking into alternatives. So the next year, I used BT to do that, which is Bacillus thuringiensis. And it's an organic methodology. And I went, okay, that's a little better. My kid could still play outside afterwards. And then after that, I said, well, what if I just let nature take over and see if we can go to a completely 100% organic gardening methodology. And this is what happened. We now grow most of what we eat. We have organically gardened in this property for over 30 years. And there is a complete balance between birds and oakworms and bees. And we have a thriving environment where I hear birds all the time I never have a problem with oak moths because guess who eats the oakworms? The birds do. So we now live in an environment that is holistically in balance. And I get to walk outside, pick raspberries, strawberries, tomatoes, peppers, whatever happens to be in season at the time, bring them in, enjoy them, and I know that I'm getting something that is nutritionally sound and just utterly delicious. You know, it's incredible that you share that story because not only is it so relatable, but I don't know a single person who would argue with me that they don't like delicious, good, fresh cooked food. So if you want fresh food, maybe just consider where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. If you want fresh food, maybe consider the fact that it's not genetically modified or it hasn't been sprayed down with pesticides, chemicals, and all these other things. Take that and put it into manufacturing for me. You said something really interesting. You said, I looked for alternatives. And that alternative assumes that what you're doing is the way to do it, and you have to find a different way to do it. We could have a whole conversation about why that's the way to do it. But today, we are faced with a catastrophic problem, which is we must find alternatives. Because Mm -hmm. the way we are doing things today ain't going to work long term if we care about where we live, if we care about future generations, and we care about our planet. I said earlier in one of the podcasts with the panelists, in case people don't understand why this is so important... The only place you are if you're not outside is inside. We know how much power one individual has in our industry of, I'll just call it architectural specification. And that's why it's so important that as individuals, we take the time to learn about the impact we can make and look for alternatives. There's some standards out there. There's some things that exist that are kind of looking at the sustainable nature of materials. Your company is a great example of that because it's... It's what you founded it on. Talk to me a little bit about what it's like to look at sustainable materials and those alternative options broadly across everything that a lighting manufacturer has to do. So let me start with sharing that when we started Lindsley Lighting, we were motivated both by Alan's experience as an architect and lighting designer, as well as my experience creating and building brands and companies. So it was a great way to work together for the very first time. And I'll never forget when we decided that we were gonna do this. We decided to take a whiteboard approach. First thing we wrote down was, we wanted to be a sustainable company. That was absolutely the first thing before we ever designed a light fixture. Then we said, what does it mean to be sustainable? How do we go about doing this? So you talk about innovation? We had to make it up. (laughs) We had to decide what we thought was sustainable. So we started with design. And we chose to focus on modernism because we see modernism as clean, classic, timeless, elegant, something that is going to withstand the test of time. If you look at the Barcelona chair 
designed by Mies van der Rohe. That design is almost 100 years old. It's still beautiful, modern, elegant. People are still buying it. So if you want to create a light fixture that is truly sustainable, you're going to design one that's timeless. So that was the first thing we decided on. And then the second thing we decided to focus on was minimalism. Because minimalism does two things. One, it is in complete harmony with modernism. But second of all, it was a second step towards sustainability. Because if you minimize the materials you use in the first place, you don't have to worry about what they are. So by making sure that we used a scarcity of materials. That satisfied the design criteria that we had as well as the sustainability criteria. Okay, so we got those two. So now we have to figure out what the designs are gonna be and then how are we gonna source them. And I just wanna point out, you wanted to have a sustainable company. And the first thing you thought about was not what you're making this out of, not what you're putting it into, not how you're shipping it. You weren't like looking for these check boxes. You were fundamentally thinking about like, what's the most important part of a sustainable luminaire? It's the fact that it doesn't go out of style. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that it lasts. It's the fact that, let's just say it, like you get your bang for your buck. Mm -hmm. And maybe then some, and then maybe somebody comes and takes it off your garage sale and still uses it because it's still cool. Absolutely. That's, I mean, that's embodied carbon at its finest right there, right? Like having something continue on its life when someone thinks it is no longer relevant to them. So that's a pretty good step one in terms of like maybe how to develop a quote sustainable product, mm -hmm. no matter what that product is. For you, it's lighting. When you look at what goes past these beautiful, minimalist, elegant designs, boy, oh boy, is there a lot to unpack. Like talk to me a little bit about, you know, what it means to think about the materiality, the manufacturing processes, the packaging, all this stuff that goes into it. Once um, we had our initial designs created, we had to start sourcing. And it was a dive into an arena we knew nothing about. So you literally, you start calling people, you start asking questions. And, you know, I think maybe we hit just the right time you know, if you think about it, we were just coming out of a recession, people were hungry for business, and they were willing to talk to an upstart lighting manufacturer that had these ideas around sustainability. So one of the first questions we would ask people is, do you adhere to any standards for sustainability? And we looked around and we were trying to figure out, okay, what are the standards that we need to adhere to? And there were none. <laughs> There were no labels. There were no definitions in, in the United States. So we started looking around the world. We found that the EU had developed Rojas. Rojas. Yes. Enter Rojas. It's interesting you said you were looking for standards because we know so much so how sustainability goes beyond just a standard or checkbox a thing. But when it comes to certain components of being sustainable, you have to say, okay, well, let's all kind of agree on what is good and what is not good so that the power of the industry can support itself as opposed to everybody having to go read the chapter book to figure it out. Right. Yeah. So when we talked to people and we said, number one criteria, can you make components or can you supply components that are Rojas compliant? And to our delight, people said, yeah, we can do that. We're in a global environment. We already know about this in Europe. We just don't have to apply it here. So sure, we'll make your parts and make them Rojas compliant. So that was our starting point. The next was we looked at, obviously, LEDs were going to be our light source. 
And if you think about it, a little over 10 years ago when we were first doing this, it was an upstart lighting source. It was not fully embraced, but we were 100% committed to it. And we were committed to working with the companies that were at the vanguard of developing not just LEDs, but the best quality LEDs, ones that delivered good light output, good CRI, good efficacy. And so we started sourcing LEDs. Okay, what do you need with an LED? You need a heat sink <laughs> to make those little diodes happy. Well, if you looked at most heat sinks, they were big and bulky, and they used a lot of aluminum and materials, and they came from overseas. So we were like, let's make our own. So we created a design, and then we started looking for an aluminum manufacturer, uh, extrusion company that could make them for us. And we partnered with a fantastic company. We are still working with them today out of Wisconsin, and they make all of our extrusions. And we have since gone from making our initial heat sink to now we have extrusions for all of our pendants. We have extrusions for our brackets that we put LEDs into for our wall sconces. All of these are custom designed to our specifications. They, we have our own dye that they're made with. And there's an interesting story behind the use of aluminum for us. You mentioned the interesting story behind aluminum, but before that, it was just a form factor. Like it was right. a simple thing that you realized, hey, it ain't out there the way we want it, so let's go develop it. And I imagine in the story behind aluminum, you learned a little bit more about not only creating your own form factor based on the design intent, but also what you were going to use to do it, why you were going to use that, and what you did to also help teach your vendors along the way. I want to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll tell that story. We'll talk just a little bit more about the standardization of sustainability, and then we'll learn a little bit more about what you and your company are doing to push all this forward. Sound good? Sounds great. Hey, it's Sam. The Light Pod is brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. They make things like documentaries, short, informative, educational two-minute videos, and of course, bring you this podcast, The Light Pod. Check them out at lytei.com. And welcome back. Over the break, Karen and I were catching up just a little bit more about, you know, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff out there in general and stuff goes in stuff and stuff makes stuff. And while we're talking about light fixtures, we're talking about components. The stuff is largely the wire, the drivers, the diodes, the boards, the reflectors. And then there's the raw materials that make up a lot of that stuff, including most of the time, the finished product, the housing, the thing that the user sees are really the only thing the user sees and they're not necessarily looking for like a green leaf hanging off of it and people don't just say well i'm not going to walk into that building because that's not a sustainable piece of aluminum but they may walk into the building because they know it's a net zero building and that's where standards come in and the whole thing kind of trickles downhill karen talk to me a little bit more about materials raw materials You've got a story about aluminum. I think it's time that you share it. So when we started developing the relationship with the company in Wisconsin that makes all of our extrusions, I wanted to learn more about what went into their manufacturing processes and their sourcing. So one of the first questions I asked them was, what's your recycled content? And I learned that it was 20%. And I'm like, any chance we could get it higher than that? 
And they said, nope. And the reason why was because of the way recycled content was created. So you take all of these different types of aluminum, everything from cans, which by the way, have two types of aluminum in the can, the body of the can and the top of the can. Most people don't realize that. To sheet aluminum, to extruded aluminum, to cast aluminum. They all use different types of aluminum that have different alloys and different hardnesses. So you grind them all up and you melt them down, but they have different melting temperatures. So as you would push them through an extrusion, the particles that were not melting at the same melting point would get stuck in the machinery and it would either ruin the extrusion or it would mean they would have to stop, clean it out, push it through again and became a loss of time. Yeah, I'm guessing people don't want to do that. Nope. So they found that the sort of the magic number was 20% and that they could push 20% recycled content through and the rest had to be virgin material. So then the question is, okay, so where did that virgin material come from? And what we found is, is that it was coming from Canada and that the reason why it came from Canada was because the biggest cost in producing aluminum is not the cost of the raw materials, the cost of the power. Canada invested in hydroelectric power <laughs> over two decades ago. And as a result, they have cost-effective power that could be used to run their aluminum smelting plants. Look at that sustainable solution, yeah. enabling sustainable production of virgin material to show up in a sustainably driven lighting company's mission. Mm -hmm. It's amazing to me. It really is the more I think about this, how this notion, not word or phrase, this notion of being sustainable is the lowest common denominator to connect so many things together. So many things are connected. So let me fast forward to today. So we had a few months ago, we had, we revisited that conversation about what's the recycled content in our aluminum extrusions. And this is what the answer is, potentially over 90%. We're like, wow, what changed? And what changed was a new recycling sorting technology. So there is a new technology, relatively new in the last five years, that can take all the different types of aluminum that gets thrown into recycling and in what's called a lights out operation, as in no human hands are involved, it is this machinery is able to sort the different types of aluminum. So 5,000 series aluminum goes in this chute, 6,000 series goes in another chute, 3,000 series goes in a different chute. Then those are then ground up and then melted down and put into ingots that can then be used because of this new technology. So the innovation didn't come from us. The innovation came from somebody in the recycling industry who saw an opportunity and it's trickled down to what we can offer. But there was the commitment, right? Absolutely. You, you had the commitment to go out and seek that, to ask for that to the point where it was worth somebody investing in technology. And obviously you weren't alone in this game. No. It's the fact that when people start asking for things on a volume basis, that the demand is high enough, people can invest capital <laughs> to create something that will supply the demand. Mm -hmm. It's very, very hard to go out and offer a supply for something there is no demand for. It also comes down to pricing. Using recycled content has an economic advantage and a pricing advantage over creating virgin materials. Especially when everyone's asking for it. Absolutely. Yeah. When you look at the need for the change or the ask, a big part of this conversation in our industry right now comes down to standards. You mentioned Rojas earlier and mm -hmm. asking people for Rojas compliant components. That's 
probably not the number one thing on a luminaire schedule today <laughs> or something that people are out there preaching at their tabletop presentations or things like that educate everyone a little bit more what's rojas why is it kind of fundamentally a good place to start and how can it help but we do need to ask for it Rojas has been around for several decades, and it started out where we started at Rojas 1, and I think there were six um, materials that were listed on. We're now at Rojas 3. There are 10 materials that are listed on, it, and they're sort of some of the, the bad actors of toxic materials, things like lead, cadmium, mercury, hexavalent chromium. And you think about lead. Lead is used in solder, and I am betting that there are an awful lot of light fixtures out there that have lead in them because it's used in soldering. But you can do lead-free solder, but you have to change your practices. I mean, we were fortunate. We started out from the very beginning that, you know, first of all, we look for opportunities to not use any soldering. But if we do have to, we use a lead-free solder. And I think that there are some very practical things that you can do to avoid using these things. And I think it's a good standard. We're talking 10 substances many of which aren't even used in most of our practices anymore. So one of the things I would love to do as a part of this podcast is inspire our entire industry to like, let's just start with being Rojas compliant. Let's go down that road. And if every, I mean, think about it. If every single company in the lighting industry were to adopt Rojas standards, we would lift the sustainable manufacturing practices overnight. And it's not a hard thing to do. Why do you think our entire industry isn't Rojas compliant? Oh my gosh, I wish I knew. <laughs> I mean, creating a company that was based upon some of these standards, it wasn't a hard thing to do. I think you have to have intent and you have to be willing. I mean, it's much easier if you're starting from scratch. If you have fixtures that are legacy fixtures and you've got molds and practices and uh, training of people, that are all lined up to do things a certain way, it's much harder to shift that than if you have done it from the very beginning. So I think that we were fortunate in that we did it from the beginning, but we've also evolved as we see new and better ways of doing things and more sustainable ways of doing things, we are adopting them. And, and another example is, you know, Living Building Challenge. And we have been asked if we could be part of Living Building Challenge projects. So that caused us to take a look at the red list because we need to be red list free. And the red list is a far more extensive list than Rojas. And just so we're clear, Living Building Challenge is a way to basically quantify everything that's going into a project across the board at every level through every part of the design phase, the build phase and everything that's being used in the red list is literally exactly what it sounds like. Some people maybe would call it a blacklist. <laughs> it's just stuff that literally you can't have. It Correct. can't be in the project, which seems insane. It seems insane to say like, we're going to make a list of stuff and it's as easy as black and white. You can't use it if it doesn't comply. Yet there are red list compliant things everywhere now because people are asking for it. When we looked at our products and we checked it off against the red list, because we had already gone down this road, it was like, check, 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 check. And then we got to wire. And all our wire was Rojas compliant. We need to have our wire made so that it meets our specifications as well as being Rojas compliant. But being Rojas compliant, you could still use PVC. And PVC is a halogenated plastic. So in order to comply, we needed 
to get rid of any halogen-related product used in wiring. In defense of PVC, there's a reason why it's used in most wire throughout the world is it is heat and fire resistant, and it provides ins it has insulative properties. It, it does a really good job at what it's supposed to do. So when you look for alternatives to that, there aren't a lot out there. So we started working with our wire manufacturers to come up with Redless Free wire. And it had to be made custom <laughs> to fit all of our standards. We make a lot of pendants. That wire is seen. It, you know, it has to look good and it has to perform electrically. And we create pendants that are on a single point of suspension. So not only does it have to have all of the electrical properties that you need, it also uh, needs to be able to suspend our fixtures and have structural integrity. So we have a big ask when we're uh, sourcing wire. You have this big ask, but you're doing it. We are. You did it with materials and aluminum and heat sinks. And look at that, by the nature of the path you went down, you're not just naturally using a product that's 90% uh, recycled today. You're going down the journey of being Redless compliant, which other people are now too, and is fantastic. And you're asking for, quote, custom wire, and I'm saying this with air quotes in my hands. It's a matter of time before your aluminum story catches up to the wire story. What's interesting is everybody buys freaking wire every single day of the week for everything, not just lighting not just right. uh, light fixtures, like it's out, it's out there. We have to ask for this. As an industry, as a universe, as a, can I say universe? Yeah, why sure, not? why not? <laughs> as an industry, as a universe, as people living on this planet, we have to innovate. And the innovation is going to take commitment, it is going to take time, and it is going to require us to be vigilant with this so-called sustainability notion or whatever anybody wants to call it, right? But at the end of the day, it is something that is so important to understand that this will not happen overnight. This is not a checkbox. There may be checkboxes along the way, but it's really a simple decision. Like your counterpart, Jane said, like just make the decision to ask, how could we do that in a sustainable way since we don't do today? For you, it's easy, Karen. It's second nature. But you know what? There's an interesting path that we all go on on this. So when we first sourced Redless Free or LBC compliant, Living Building Challenge compliant wire, it was to satisfy the needs of specific types of projects. And we had no idea, would we be happy with the wire? Would it be easy to install? Could our team work with it in the factory? So it came, we liked it, we started shipping it, and then we kind of said, all right, Let's make this a standard offering, but we had to make it as an adder because it was more expensive for us to source. So Redless Free Wire is available on all of our products, but there's an adder for it. And we were looking at it, we're like, ah, oh, you know, should we make this standard? No, 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 let's just keep it the way it is. Everything's working. I was out in our factory one day and head of operations, who happens to also be my son, <laughs> we were talking about wire. And he walks over to the the new Redless Free black wire we have. And he said, this stuff's gorgeous. And it's so much easier to work with than what we currently are using. Why don't we use this all the time? And so that led us on a path of like, hey, why don't we just shift over? And so we went back to our wire manufacturer and we said, all right, what is our price going to be if this is what we do all the time? And so the price came down considerably. And just as we were about to place that that order, a couple of other companies where we source wire said, we're now offering similar wire. Can we have a shot at this? <laughs> so 
it's like we're something where we tried so, so hard to, to get it to work at first. All right, now other people see that there's an opportunity and they want to be a part of it. So I look at how far we've come and how quickly. And for example, the most recent product offering that we introduced, the Shooting Star Pendant, which is this, you talk about minimalism, it's one inch in diameter, <laughs> puts out over a thousand lumens. But we wanted the wire for that to also be minimalist. So we wanted to go with a braided wire that was very, very, very thin and redless free. So from day one, that product is a redless free product. As I'm sitting here listening to your stories, I just keep smiling because <laughs> it's a choice. It's really all it is. It's a choice. Do you want to be redless free? Do you want to be sustainably focused? Do you want to do that at a checkbox level so you can have a declare label? Do you want to do that across the board because it matters to you? Do you consider the unintended consequences of doing it one way or another? And most people say no, myself included. Like we go about things, we make logical decisions and we move throughout. But you're such a model example of what can happen when you just let this drive everything. And I think there's something that we can all learn from that. Whether it's a manufacturer, whether it's a designer, whether or not it's a sales rep, like there's just fundamentally decisions you can make that may guide you down a path to make your mission, your goal, even more anchoring. And if you're lucky, other people might care about it too. Karen, this has been such an awesome conversation and really something that honestly inspires me and I hope will inspire so many others to just think about it. You know, think about that innovation and commitment. Think about innovation commitment for whatever that matters to you. But consider that sustainable notion and what it can do for you. As you look forward in our industry, here we are today in 2022, where do you think we're headed? And what do you think is next on the forefront of more companies, more people, more entities adopting thoughts and strategies behind this? I would like to see us as an industry embrace the idea of sustainability. Years ago, I worked with a gentleman who was responsible for managing change. He was a change management expert. And he told me 80% of people spend 80% of their time resisting change when change is inevitable. It is part of the geology of our planet. It is part of the biology of people, plants, and animals. So change is going to happen. And I think that the desire to have a planet that is sustainable, that lives beyond our lifetime, is something that is pretty universally felt, even if it's not acted on. And so what I would like to see is our entire industry lift itself and adopt the change that is inevitable. We are going to be a sustainable planet or we won't have a planet. <laughs> It's pretty simple. So consequently, I would like to see our industry take a leap forward, adopt Rojas. I would like to see lighting designers put all products on their specs need to meet Rojas standards. It is something they could do today and it would change our industry overnight. And once everybody starts down that path, now we can start looking at material transparency and declare labels and EPDs and HPDs, but some of that starts feeling overwhelming. And I think that we as an industry need to unite in terms of, and I know there's a lot of work being done toward this, to be able to create standards that we can all uphold and that are easily understood 
and easily implemented by the design community as well as the manufacturers. The most important word in everything there is community. It takes community and it takes commitment from the community. Karen, thank you for being our ringleader for a documentary, The Time Is Now. Thank you so much for spending time with us to motivate us to learn all about this. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, they have questions or they want to continue this conversation, what's the best place they can get in touch with you? Send me an email, karen at lindsleylighting.com. Karen Jess Lindsley <laughs> is the CEO and co-founder of Lindsley Lighting. Check them out. They make uh, pretty cool minimalistic pendants. They are pretty beautiful. And um, think about that aluminum and how you can finish it. Karen, hang in there. We'll catch up with you soon. Sounds great. See ya. See ya. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Light Pod. If you enjoyed it, do me a favor and click that like, follow, or subscribe button. That's the best way to never miss another episode where we talk to people about all things lighting who have inspirational and thought-provoking conversations to share. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.